didn't even need a coat today as we came in. Uh, As we study God's Word together this morning, I want you to remember one little phrase. Three words, okay? One little phrase. Character is destiny. Character is destiny. That what you are, oh, there we go. We've got sound. Character is destiny, is what I want you to remember, all right? Uh, Because here's the deal. What you are will determine the outcome, not only of your life, but also have an impact on your kids and on future generations of people after you. You know what a definition of a culture is? Culture is how we all behave together, right? And how we act together produces the culture in which we live. Amen? And so what kind of character we all have together produces the world in which we live, right? And so if you want to know why the world is the way it is, look around. Because of us, right? We built this thing. Uh, Us and our neighbors and our friends and our family, we all built it together. Character is destiny. And uh, what you are will determine to a great degree who you are and what legacy you you leave to your descendants in the world. And I want to give you a couple examples by way of introduction here to Genesis chapter 49, where we're going to be today. Uh, First of all, what comes to your mind, first thing that comes to your mind when uh, I say these two words, Billy Graham, what do you think, right? You have, most people have an enormously positive association with Billy Graham. For most of us, it, it raises this image of this fiery evangelist that we remember from our younger years. Or, or maybe it's the elder statesman of evangelicalism that he is today. He is now one of the most respected people in the entire country. He's in his 90s now. Uh, And he has been unashamed to talk about Jesus, to share the gospel, and he has greatly blessed the world in what he has done and, and in sharing the gospel all over the world to millions of people, literally millions of people all over the world have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ come out of the mouth of Billy Graham. He's had a huge impact. He's been counselor to presidents. He's been the author of a number of books. Uh, He's been used by God to be the builder of ministries, the founder of Christianity Today, and on and on and on and on and on. This huge impact of one man's life. And his legacy is absolutely unmistakable. And even in a world in which Evangelical, Bible-believing people are largely thought of in our world today as a punchline, but Billy Graham is still revered, even by people who are not Christian. Why? Because for the last 65 years, he has shown himself to be the real deal. And you cannot find any dirt on this guy. He is the real McCoy, as they say. Right? He's the, real, he's the real deal. He's not just one of these you know, fly-by-night televangelist types, right? He's the real, authentic Christian. And if people 
who do not know what a Christian is meet this man, they say, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, but if I ever became one, I'd like to be like that guy. Because he seems to be the real thing. Now, let me give another example. What do you think of when I say the words, Ted Haggard? Some of you may may have to blow the dust off, but he too has been counselor to a president. He was head of the National Association of Evangelicals until the year 2006. He appeared on Oprah, on Nightline, on Dateline NBC, and a host of other TV programs. He's been interviewed at churches and by the national media. He was pastor of one of the largest churches in the country in Colorado Springs. I personally watched this man interviewed by, I think it was Diane Sawyer at Christmas several years back, and he gave the gospel as clearly as it has ever been given. And yet, none of those things, when you hear the words Ted Haggard, are what you think of. And none of those things are at the top of any of his Google search results, I'll assure you. I did one this week. And why is that? Well, because six years ago, all that Ted had built, his church, his leadership in the National Association of Evangelicals, his media appearances, his advice to the president, all came to a screeching halt. Why? Because it was revealed that for the previous three years he had been carrying on an affair and was a habitual meth user. Why do I bring all that up? Because character is destiny. Our character determines what sort of life we're going to wind up with and we can't help being what we are. Sooner or later... Our true character does shine through. Amen? And character is destiny, not just for individuals, but even for nations and people. What sort of people we are determines, to a great extent, the world our children inhabit. And we leave a legacy, whether we intend to or not. And at the close of Genesis, here in chapter 49, as as this grand story that begins in the creation and then moves forward through the promises to Abraham and then the passing of those promises to his promised son Isaac and then to Jacob. And now Jacob is passing on the torch to his sons and this story is starting to close down. Jacob is looking over his sons one by one and giving them an evaluation. And he is announcing to them the destiny of their descendants as a result. And what you see is a wide variety of men. And their character shapes their descendants for good and for ill for generations after them. And I have a conviction there's a lot that we can learn as people in the here and now from this. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 49. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles on that table in the back. I don't think they're totally hidden by the communion cup collection baskets. Uh, But there are some Bibles back there, and grab one. They are free. They are here for you. If you need a Bible, get one, especially if you need one in a modern translation. Uh, we use the ESV here uh, as I preach, and um, it, but 
and, and if you don't have one of those, get one. Uh, if you have another Bible in a modern translation, that's great too. And uh, the best Bible to get is the one you will read and apply to your life. So uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, but they're there. Uh, Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that his resting place was good and the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Now, Jacob starts off naming his sons in birth order, but after Judah, they aren't addressed completely and strictly in the order they were born. Uh, according to Genesis 30, if you look at the 
birth order, uh, you see that, Zebul- that Zebulun was born before Issachar, and Rachel's handmaid Bilhah bore both Dan and Naft- Naphtali before Leah's handmaid Zilpah bore Gad and Asher. So these are not completely in order uh, in terms of their birth. But it starts off with starts off with Leah and her sons, and then the sons of the handmaids, and then Rachel's sons last. And that's not super important, but just in case you're reading this list and you're going, well, this is the order they were born in. No, it's not. For that, you've got to go to Genesis 29 and 30. Um, but what's really important is that Jacob evaluates and looks at each one of his sons. And Jacob's words about Reuben start off great. He's praising Reuben. Reuben, you're my firstborn. You're the first sign of my masculinity. You're the first boy that I had, and it's great. And you are the one who should have been preeminent in power and in dignity and in prosperity because you're the firstborn boy. But... And there, after that but, it all goes downhill. Uh, he says he's unstable as water in my translation. Uh, and you kind of wonder, well, what's that mean? It's probably, uh, in the Hebrew there, a reference to a wadi in the desert. And these desert wadis only have water part of the time. Sometimes they have water that flows through this creek bed, and other times there's no water. And so... Reuben, in other words, is like a guy looking for a stream in the desert, not knowing whether or not he is going to be there. Sometimes Reuben is your man, and sometimes Reuben is like, where did he go? You can't rely on him. He's not trustworthy. He's unreliable. He's unpredictable. He vacillates between doing what is right and pursuing evil. And the big sign of that is the fact that he slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, in Genesis chapter 35. It's just kind of mentioned in passing in Genesis 35, but Jacob remembers this many years later. And he says, look, if you want to know why you're not head of the family, this is why. You don't do that. It's... It's an example of an unstable character of somebody who can't be relied on for moral leadership. Reuben, you're going to be passed over. And in the same way, Simeon and Levi also pay a price for their past evil. Jacob says, you guys are violent men. And he says, in fact, he goes, Simeon and Levi are brothers, which is a poetic way. Of course, they're brothers, right? They're two sons of the same mother, but what is a poetic way of saying these are two guys that share the same character, that they're identical twins when it comes. They weren't born identical twins, but they share the same character in terms of who they are and how they behave. He says, look here, and if you look at the text, you need to look closely at it. It says, My Bible reads, weapons of violence are their swords. Now, that word that's translated there in the ESV, weapons of violence, this is the only place that word that's translated that way appears in the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And so it's problematic to know how to translate it. 
Uh, but I agree with the commentator who wrote that it probably is best translated as cutters or as knives. And these cutters that are referenced there are these knives that were used to circumcise the men of Shechem. There's this whole passage, that this judgment that Jacob is pronouncing on these two boys is because of their sin with the men of Shechem and how they murdered them all. And what he's saying is, is that you took a circumcision knife and turned it into a sword, turned it into a weapon of destruction. You took something that was supposed to be the symbol of God's blessing on his covenant people, and you turned it into an avenue for destroying people. That's evil. It's violent. It's cruel. And in verse 6, uh, he elaborates a little bit on their violent tendencies. He says, Let not my soul come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. In other words, you don't want to be in, in with these guys. If you get in with these guys, you're going to be in a problem. In their anger, it says, they killed men, and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Now, the text actually says, if you read back in uh, Genesis chapter, um, oh, what is that? Um, I think it's about chapter 40. No, before that. Um, let me see here. Well... Let me find it. I'll find it. 34. That sounds good. Yeah. Chapter 34. Genesis 34. Where this incident happens at Shechem, it says that they carried off all the animals as plunder. And so you go, well, wait a minute. It doesn't say they hamstrung the oxen. And what a lot of commentators think, and I agree with this, is that oxen are a peaceful animal. They're a peaceful animal, and if you capture them in war, you put them to peaceful use. But what you would do is if somebody had war horses or chariot horses, you would hamstring them. And what you do in that is you take a sword and you cut that, uh, that big tendon that runs right behind the knee on the back leg. And then that animal can't any longer be used uh, as a war horse or as, a, as, a, as an instrument of war anymore, because the thing can barely walk at that point. But you didn't do that to an ox. And so a lot of commentators feel that what that is is metaphor for what you did was wantonly destroyed peace-loving people. That these Shechemites were not doing you any harm, but you killed them anyway, far out of proportion to the demands of justice, you wantonly attacked people who were doing you no harm. It's a poetic way of describing what happened at Shechem. And so as a consequence, these two tribes, Jacob says, are going to be scattered among the tribes of Israel. Now, Levi's descendants eventually become the priestly tribe. And it's interesting how that happens. After the incident with the golden calf. Moses goes out to the people, and the people are all still running wild in, in, in this, this 
nasty festival of worship to this golden calf god. And Moses goes out with Joshua and he says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites rally to Moses. And he says, Strap on a sword and go through the camp and each one kill his brother and sister and father and mother if they are participating in this idolatrous worship. And the Levites do. They go through and they kill 3,000 people as a result of that. And many of them slew their brothers and family members who were participating in idolatry because it's treason against the living God. And it's a capital crime. And on that day, God set them apart and said, you will be the priests because you had zeal for the holiness of the Lord. But as the priestly tribe, they're not granted a region and an inheritance as a, as a as a section or a state within the land of Israel, they are given instead 48 towns scattered all throughout the land. And the people where they live are to take care of them and to provide them support. But in exchange, they are to teach them the ways of the Lord. But they are scattered, just like Jacob said they would be, all throughout the land. The tribe of Simeon, interestingly enough, they're on the other side of things. They get involved after the incident with Balaam, the false prophet that the Midianites hired. Uh, the Balaam said, well, you know, you can't, you can't curse Israel, but you can get God to curse them. So involve the, some of the people in idolatry, and then God will judge them. And large numbers of the Simeonites got involved in that idolatry. And God sent a plague to deal with them. And so the Simeonites, at the time of the entry into the land, were a very small tribe. And they are allotted a territory within the borders of Judah. And they don't get their own land. They're scattered. And eventually, they're essentially absorbed into the tribe of Judah. They don't maintain a separate identity. With Judah, as you look at this, the focus turns from the past and the sins of the past to the future. And Judah's descendants says, your brothers will praise you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. So you're going to have you're going to have an honored place among your family. You're going to be uh, you're going to conquer your enemies and all of your brothers, all your father's sons are going to bow down to you. In other words, you're going to be the ruling boy. And it compares him to. A pride of lions. He says, you're like a lion's cub. In other words, right now, you have a low position, but you're going to rise, and you're going to go up from the prey. You're going to stoop down and crouch as a lion, but eventually, you're going to be strong. Like, if you see a lioness out in the bush, you don't walk up and go, I wonder if I could poke this thing, see what the reaction will be, right? You're not going to do that. You're just going to try and sneak on by. Why? Because this is a lioness. These things are dangerous. They pull down and eat stuff like Cape buffalo and zebras, you know. They grab a Cape buffalo, which would be a real problem for you and me. They grab one by the throat, pull him down, and eat him. This is a lion. This is a strong, powerful, dangerous animal. Amen? you don't believe me, go stand down there at Peoria Zoo right up next to the glass while that big boy comes walking up. 
and imagine you're on the other side of the glass. It's a, they're a frightening thing, right? And he says, look, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then my Bible reads, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, again, here that line, until tribute comes to him, is a little problematic to translate um, in terms of what in terms of how it's supposed to be understood, it, it includes a reference. Uh, there's a Hebrew word there, Shiloh. And, and there's, there's debate about what does that refer to? Is it a messianic title until Shiloh comes? Or until we come to Shiloh, which was the name of a town in Israel, uh, where, where David picked up the Ark of the Covenant and took it into uh, the temple in Jerusalem? Or is it, um, does it mean until it, until it comes to whom it belongs? And we, we're not exactly sure. But most interpreters, however it's to be rendered, take this as a reference to uh, that is clearly messianic. Something that, is, that looks forward to a great king who will descend from Judah. And... Regardless of how you translate it, the idea is is that when that king comes, there's going to be enormous prosperity and enormous blessing. It says he will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, that's a reference to grapevines. Now, one thing you don't do if you have livestock is tie them off to stuff that you're trying to grow. Right? Why? Because they will eat it. And he says, look, you're going to have so much prosperity when this figure descended from Judah comes that you won't even care. You'll tie him up to your best grapevine. Tie your horse off. Tie your donkey off to your best grapevine. Why? Because grapes are going to be so abundant it won't matter. says he's washed his garments in wine in other words what's wine turn things purple right or or deep red it's he's going to be a royal figure and his it says he's washed his vesture in the blood of grapes and his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk the idea is is that uh, there's so much prosperity that he's consuming wine and milk to a degree that his eyes get darker and his teeth get lighter Right? It's a poetic way of referring to enormous prosperity. And, of course, the Bible talks about that, that when the Messiah reigns, that the, the, it says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and the, la- the, the lamb and the leopard will lie down together. And the, I mean, the lamb and the lion and the, le- the leopard and the goat are going to lie down together. And the lion will eat grass like an ox, and, and the little child will play by the hole of the viper. Right? Why? Because the Messiah has come. And in his reign, there's going to be this tremendous prosperity and a renewing of the world. And Jacob looks down through history and he sees that this is coming for Judah. That one of his descendants is going to be the one who is to come. That that did come and that we celebrate this month, right? The next address is Zebulun, who is said to dwell at the seashore and become a haven for ships. 
And it's hard to know what to do with this, this one. Out of all these, it's hard to know what to do with this one because Zebulun didn't get territory near the sea. Uh, Manasseh and Asher did, and Zebulun was located in Lower Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, but away from the Mediterranean. And so it's possible uh, that that is the reference, that he became a tribe of fishermen. And the idea is, is that that's what happened. Uh, with Zebulun. Um, it's also possible that like Dan, his original allotment proved tough to take, and so he didn't do it, uh, as the tribe of Dan did not. Uh, they didn't receive their original allotment. Now, the tribe of Issachar, it says, is a strong donkey, and my Bible reads, uh, between the sheep folds or between two saddlebags, your Bible may read. Uh, his land was the Jezreel Valley, which contained the main highway between Egypt and Babylon, and it was located between two mountain ranges, a Carmel mountain range in the north um, where the sheep grazed and the, Gimbo- the Gilboa mountain range to the, to the south, which was also a place where sheep grazed. And so when you picture him as like a strong donkey between two sheep folds, there's sheep here and there's sheep here, and he's in the middle, Right? That's the, that's the poetic reference, but it's also a location that was strategic. It was located in this fertile valley where you could grow crops, but it was along this major highway. So if you're going to conquer the land of Israel, what are you going to have to have? Control of that travel route. And so as Israel was conquered in later years, the people of Issachar were frequently cons- uh, conquered also, and they were put to forced labor, just like Jacob says it's going to happen. Dan says, look, you're go- he says to Dan, you're going to be a judge for your people. The word Dan means judge. He says, Dan, your name means judge, and you're going to be a judge for your people. Uh, but you're also going to be treacherous, like a snake on the road. That bites his people, uh, bites the rider on a horse and knocks him down. And that's what Dan turns out to be. His most famous descendant is Samson, who became one of the mighty judges of the nation of Israel. And he delivers the people from the Philistines to a great extent. But, like a snake in the road, the descendants of Dan are also treacherous against the people of Israel. They're the first tribe to introduce idolatry on a wide scale. That's also in the book of Judges. In fact, Dan, as a tribe, is so completely given over to idolatry that when the tribes of Israel are listed again in the book of Revelation, Dan's tribe does not appear. And his evaluation concludes, I think, for that reason, with Jacob's prayer, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Because the tribe of Dan does not turn out well. The name Gad means attack or raid. And so his evaluation is a play on his name. Raiders shall raid the raiders, Gad but he will raid at their heels. Gad's land was located on the east side of the Jordan. And on the east side of the Jordan, away from the other tribes, he was frequently attacked by every 
tribe of nomads coming through. They were like, hmm, here's a nice little town. Be a shame if anything happened to it. Boys, have at it. And they would raid all over that, those, e- those eastern tribes. But Gad is a tribe of warriors, and they come after the people who raid them. Uh, Asher is going to be rich and prosperous. Naphtali will be a, a hill people, free like the deer. And in Judges, uh, the, the prophetess Deborah sings of the people of Naphtali who risk their lives, she says, on the heights of the fields. These are the mountain folks. These are the people who enjoy being wild and free on the hilltops. These are the West Virginia residents, if you will, right? These are the hill people. And, she, he, and he compares them to like a deer. And then we come to Joseph and Benjamin. And here Jacob plays on the name of Joseph's son Ephraim, whose name means fruitful. And he says, Joseph, you're going to be fruitful like a plant growing next to a spring so that you don't have to water it. And because of that constant source of water, it makes the plant grow strong and its branches are run. He says, you're going to be mighty in battle because you're going to trust in the Lord the mighty one of Jacob. And what you see later in history is that, jo- is that both Joshua as well as the number of the good judges, the ones that the Lord commends, are descendants of Joseph, either from the tribe of Ephraim or the tribe of Manasseh, including Gideon and Jephthah and Deborah herself. They're all descendants of Joseph. And furthermore, Joseph is going to see God's blessings on his descendants because he is faithful to God. He's faithful to God. He'll have blessings, uh, and and Jacob here just gets expansive. He goes, blessings from the heavens and blessings from the deep, in other words, the ocean. From one end of the earth to the other, blessings of the breasts and the womb. In other words, you're going to have lots of descendants and children, and they do. There are Descendants of Joseph living on both sides of the Jordan River. There are descendants of Joseph living just north of Jerusalem. They spread out everywhere throughout the whole land. They are blessed by God. And he's going to be blessed above all of his brothers because he was the one that God set apart through his dream. And last is Benjamin, who's like the wolf, Jacob says. They were fierce and violent people. Uh, they had a, had a cruel streak that ran through them. Probably the most famous Benjamite in the Old Testament is Saul the king. And in the New Testament, Saul the apostle. Both men, same name, both of them had kind of a mean streak that ran through them, right? Till Saul of Tarsus was redeemed. And then he repented of the fact that he persecuted the church of God, right? But also, with the descendants of, the, of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin in the, t- in the days of the judges is nearly wiped out. It gets down to 600 men, and that's it. Because of an incident involving their defense of one of their brothers uh, in one of their uh, little towns in Benjamin. Uh, if you want to read that story, I'll not describe it here 
uh, given the audience, but Judges about chapter 17 to the end of the book is about how Benjamin fell into sin and then defended it and were nearly wiped out as a tribe as a result. They're fierce people. And last of all, we come to Jacob's own uh, final words. I want to read those. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded, the, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is east, uh, that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now this is the last we see of Jacob. This is, a, this is the final snapshot of his life. And Jacob, at the end of his life, says, bury me where my fathers are buried. Bury me where I buried Leah. Bury me where my mom and my dad and where my grandfather and grandmother are buried. Bury me in the place that God promised to us. Bury me in, this, in the cave, in the field, the land of our inheritance. Bury me in the land that God promised to me. And his sorrows are coming to an end, and his struggles are concluding. And as you look at Jacob's life, did he have sins? Absolutely. Did he have struggles? Definitely. Was he a perfect man? Definitely not. But the one good thing that you can say about Jacob is that even to his very last breath, he is pursuing God's blessing. And he wants, even after he is dead, to be buried in the place that God had blessed. He wants to have his, his body lay where God promised the blessing to come. To put me there. It's a symbolic act. Not because, not because necessarily that God cares where we put our bodies. He's going to resurrect us all one day anyway. And it won't matter. But because Jacob is trying to teach his sons that that is the land of promise. And that is the land that God gave a covenant with us to give us. And that's where I want to be. I want to be in the center of God's blessing and in the center of God's covenant. Put me there. And that brings us almost to the end of the book. We've got one chapter left. And if you come back next week, I will wrap this book up completely. But before we conclude our time together in the scriptures, and before we go to communion, I want to just ask you a few questions. Because one day there's going to be an evaluation. And we will stand not before our earthly father, but before our heavenly father. And he's going to pass an evaluation on us with blessings that are tied to it. So let me ask you, what kind of destiny are you looking at? based on your character. If every person in this church was just like you, what kind of church would we have? 
If every person in your family walked in the same way with God that you walk with him, what would your family be like? And I'm talking about not just what we can see. I'm talking about who you really are. Because most of us can shine things up for Sunday morning. But that's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what the Lord evaluates based on. He evaluates based on who we really are. As he, t- as he told the prophet Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. What kind of church would we have? What kind of family would you have if every person in it was just like you? What kind of fruit is going to be born by the replication of your life? And these are not simply idle questions that I'm just asking to provoke some sort of thought experiment on all of us. So that we can forget completely about God's word in this chapter as soon as we walk out the door. It's to help us to reflect seriously about the fact that one day we will stand before God. And his evaluation over us will stand, and not just for a few generations into the future like Jacob, but for all eternity. And you need to ask yourself, what kind of blessing can I expect based on my character? And on top of that, on more of a short-term basis than that, what kind of legacy am I leaving? What kind of character am I passing on? Because if you look at this list, there are good evaluations and bad ones. There are blessings that follow good men, and there are condemnations that are given to wicked men. And there are also blessings given to formerly wicked men who have become good, like Judah. So the question is, what sort of person are you? Because character is destiny. Character is destiny. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. You know, when I was a kid, my dad used to teach the youth group in our home. Every week we would gather. And one of the things he would always say to us as kind of an illustration is he said, you know, picture your life as being like two warehouses in heaven. And one of them is marked blessing and the other one is marked reward. And I always thought this was a great image. Because, you know, basically the objective in the Christian life is to have the blessing, the warehouse marked blessing, be empty. And the blessing, the, the warehouse marked reward, be full. That in other words, I got all of the blessings in life that God intended for me to have because I was obedient and I pursued him with my whole heart and mind and soul and strength. And that warehouse marked reward be full because I was faithful in this life. God gave me great reward in the next. And you would not want to get to heaven and have the reverse be true. That you look at the warehouse marked blessing and go, wow, I could have had all that had only I been obedient. And get to and and look over at your warehouse marked reward and go, kind of empty in here. I mean, I am with the Lord in his presence for all eternity, and that's a tremendous uh, reward, obviously. However, I didn't receive everything that the Lord had intended for me. Character is destiny. What sort of person are you? 
What sort of person are you going to be? Let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these instructions from your word about these men and their future destinies and how their lives turned out and how their character had an impact even generations and hundreds of years after their death. Father, I pray for each one who is here this morning that they would have a deep understanding of the truth of your word, that what kind of people we become as we respond to your grace and as we are obedient to follow your word determines to a great degree the kind of people we become and the kind of reward that we have in your presence. Father, help us to have an eternal perspective. Help us to evaluate our actions today, not based on what we would like to do in the moment, but based on what is right and what will produce reward for us in the future and blessing in the present. Father, I pray that by your grace you would make clear to us the areas where we fall short and that by your grace, again, you would provide your Holy Spirit to help us to repent and to change. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.